For that reason, it seems to me that in some respects, what Marxism functions, is a, in, at least in the context of China, is a way of, of providing legitimacy for the regime. The issue of whether people actually believe in the ideology, well, that's, that's hard to tell, especially in a culture where people are very good or even trained in some respects not to let you know what they're thinking. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. A belief in the positive power of free markets has been a part of the political and philosophical program of the political right for virtually all of the post-World War II conservative movement. While elements of protectionism, even isolationism, have always been currents in the political right, a support for free trade and free markets has been a part of that movement's dogma for years. Today, that is no longer the case. Many have lost confidence in the country's commitment to economic liberty. Across the political spectrum, many want the government to play an even greater role in the economy via protectionism, industrial policy, stakeholder capitalism, or even quasi-socialist policies. Numerous American political and business leaders are embracing these ideas, and traditional defenders of markets have struggled to respond to these challenges in fresh ways. From the perspective of advocates for a free market economy, this amounts to conservatives taking a left turn on economic questions. Why is this happening? And what can free market advocates do about this problem? Today, I talk to Dr. Samuel Gregg, Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy and Senior Research Faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and an Affiliate Scholar here at the Acton Institute, about the turn to the state by members of the so-called New Right and how arguments for a market-based economy need to be refreshed for the problems of the 21st century. Dr. Samuel Gregg is a Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy and Senior Research Faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and an Affiliate Scholar at the Acton Institute. He's a Doctorate of Philosophy in Moral Philosophy and Political Economy from Oxford University and an MA in Political Philosophy from the University of Melbourne. He has written and spoken extensively on questions of political economy, economic history, monetary theory and policy, and natural law theory. He is the author of 16 books, including On Ordered Liberty in 2003, The Commercial Society in 2007, Wilhelm Rupke's Political Economy in 2010, Becoming Europe in 2013, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization in 2019, The Essential Natural Law in 2021, and most recently, The Next American Economy, Nation, State, and Markets in an Uncertain World in 2022. He is also a contributor to Law and Liberty, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, a fellow of the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, and a visiting scholar at the Heritage Foundation. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
Sam Gregg, welcome to Act in Line. Thank you, Eric. It's sh- good to be here. Or should I say, welcome back to Act in Line. Uh-huh. Your first uh, first appearance on this program since you uh, defected to uh, uh, another wonderful organization, uh, AIER. So uh, tell us, uh, tell everybody about the work that you've been doing at AIER since uh, you have left the Acton Institute. So uh, the work I've been doing at the American Institute for Economic Research has been very focused around um, the themes that come out of my book, The Next American Economy, Nation, State and Markets in an Uncertain World, because, uh, as you know, Eric, there are intense debates uh, in America, but even more specifically on the right, so to speak, about questions of political economy, the role of the government in the economy, the uh, whether we should be going down the road of using things like tariffs, protectionism, industrial policy, etc., and that's been my life really for the past eight years. So what I'm doing now is, is more or less an extension of that. And what's interesting about that debate is that it is not going away. It is becoming uh, ever more omnipresent. It's becoming something that I think free marketers should be paying even more attention to because my fear is that at least on the right, so to speak, we're going to find more and more people drifting in this direction of what amount to essentially progressive views of the nature of government and its role in the economy. Before uh, we were planning on what we were going to talk about today, we were discussing uh, this piece from Bill McGurn in the Wall Street Journal from earlier in March that we'll include in the show notes uh, with a provocative headline, Is the Pope Capitalist? Uh, which is a good take on the Is the Pope Catholic joke because, you know, that's, uh, well, we won't dive into the what, what, what that means. Um, but is the Pope capitalist? And I like the subhead. The left's push to, quote, civilized capitalism has today found a home on the right. Uh, like you know, talk about the the overlap in the Venn diagram between uh, what you just described as, as your project and what Bill is observing here about this new take on capitalism that is coming from the political right, which which used to be a bastion of belief in free markets, um, if not you know entirely and with its own flaws, like as as we've been talking recently about. Bank bailouts. I'm sure many of us have some PTSD-like flashbacks to the end of the George W. Bush presidency and proclamations of uh, "I have to violate a capitalist system in order to save a capitalist economy." So, in a sense, these things aren't new, but they certainly have a different flavor right now. It seems that particular article, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal, uh, it, it actually has very little to do with the Pope per se. That's the irony of it. If you read the article, it's actually about the drift on the right towards more extensive use of government intervention in the economy. Now, the left have for a long time <clears throat> talked about using the state, using regulation, using different forms of intervention to quote-unquote civilize capitalism. That's a very social democratic-like theme that is expressed in those two words, civilizing capitalism. But it's very clear that the same types of motifs that the left articulate about what they think the state should be doing to quote-unquote civilized capitalism are appearing now on significant sections of the right. So, for example, we hear uh, some Republican senators arguing in favor of putting 
uh, worker representatives, i.e. trade union officials, on the boards of companies. We are seeing significant figures um, um, on the conserv- in the conservative world saying that it's time to abandon any illusions about free trade and move towards protectionism. We also see a good number of uh, conservative thinkers arguing that we need to be using what's called industrial policy, which is basically interventions into specific sectors of the economy in order to produce not just particular economic outcomes, but particular social outcomes as well. And they're really talking about, in this respect, manufacturing industry, and they're talking about blue-collar working families. And again, this is something we've heard from the left for a very long period of time, but now there are some significant figures on the right who are arguing essentially the same sorts of things. In fact, one of the things I talk about in my book is that if you look at some of the economic policies of uh, the senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, and you compare them to some of the policies articulated by the senator from Florida, Marco Rubio, Uh, two people who you would think would have very little in common. On economic policy, there isn't that big a gap between them. They're both called for the use of industrial policy. They're both called for putting worker representatives, i.e. trade union officials, on the boards of companies. And they've also used this language of, let's call it economic patriotism, to try and wrap what you might call interventionist policies up in the flag so that the effect, of course, is to portray free marketers as somehow anti-American or not caring about America. So these, I think, are some of the the trends that we're seeing uh, across the right to which uh, Bill McGurn's article alludes. And if anything, I think they're accelerating. I remember as well a period of time, well, a period of time seems to be currently the one with us where uh, voices like Tucker Carlson are essentially echoing Elizabeth Warren's economic platform. Um, and I've also we've we've heard this from people like Tucker for a while about this, you know, w- where the right took a left turn on the idea of uh, a market economy that you know capitalism is just a tool, right? that it is it is not an end in and of itself. Uh, and it is if it's not producing the kinds of ends that we would desire, then uh, this is creating, I think, uh, or it's it's explained in a way is to create a permission structure for uh, the kind of stuff that you were talking about from Marco Rubio to engage in protectionism and industrial policy and, and all of that. Where where did this left turn come from? And, wow. and the the other part that I want to make sure that I, I get your comments on is I, I've always found this kind of Mott and Bailey to exist with this argument with people of this new political right where I'll point out something like uh, the, the changes that you just highlighted, industrial policy and all of that. To me, these are people on the right moving to the left on economics Um one might even say sometimes embracing some notions of 
uh, socialism or democratic socialism or a more socialized economy than the right previously would have. And the response that we'll get is just like political economy is not a new thing. Like the, just the idea that anything other than uh, market fundamentalism um, is socialism and just absolutely unacceptable uh, is it, it should be laughed at. So th- I gave you a lot there to respond to. Uh, feel free to, to take it in any order you wish. Well, let's start with the, the question you asked about when did this left turn happen? Well, I certainly started detecting it myself around about 2015 when, of course, we had Donald Trump running for president and there were very clear indications that he was not in favor of free trade, that he rejected, in fact, significant portions of the Republican Party's economic program in 2015. at that being one of the few things that Donald Trump truly was consistent about over time. You can <laughs> go back to the 1980s. Right. Now, the the villain in the story, right, in, in this narrative of trade is something to be won and lost. Uh, if you go back to the 80s, Japan is the bugaboo, and then it kind of becomes NAFTA in the 1990s and post-NAFTA uh, becoming a thing and has become China now. Uh, but the, the story itself hasn't changed. The villain has as the uh, as you know Japan falls off and and has the lost decade, which has turned into essentially lost multiple decades uh, from their economic perspective. Yes, and so when we we look at these changes, we see these ideas being articulated um, at different points of American history. I mean, the the argument about tariffs, for example. If you go back to the 19th century, after the subject of slavery, tariffs was the subject that most divided the country. People forget that. Um, But in more recent times, I think, if you're looking for a more immediate antecedent before 2015 for this shift towards a more favorable view of the state, I think Pat Buchanan's 1992 Republican presidential campaign, where he he basically killed off George H.W. Bush's chances of a second term, in which he made it very clear that he was very much opposed to free trade and was very much uh, – he was arguing things like free trade ends up killing people. That's, that's sort of the argument that you were hearing from people like him at the time. So those arguments never really went away. But of course – the other precipitating factor, I think, in a lot of this is the rise of China because there were debates back in the late 1990s and early 2000s about whether America should allow China to enter the World Trade Organization. And the argument was if we bring China into the fold, so to speak, then economic liberty will work its magic and start to transform that regime from within. And in retrospect, of course, that just didn't happen. It's very clear that that didn't happen. And it's very clear that we underestimated the resilience of what is, after all, a 4,000-year-old culture of authoritarian top-down rule. So that was a very good example, I think, of where maybe those of us who are free marketers, I think we oversold our case and that we made the argument that if countries enter global markets, they will become, quote unquote, just like us. Well, that was an underestimation of the role, I think, of culture and politics when it comes to 
the willingness of regimes to adopt different parts of economic policy, but nonetheless making sure that it doesn't result in some sort of transformation of the re regime from within. So <clears throat> I think in the mid-2010s, we see many of these things start to crescendo. Um, Donald Trump's presidential campaign gives a voice and a platform to many of these ideas that had been floating around for some period of time. And <clears throat> and I think a lot of people, partly because uh, Donald Trump became president, uh, a lot of people started on the right. So it certainly started gravitating in that direction of saying things like, well, <clears throat> we've spent all this time, time trying to dismantle the administrative state. We don't seem to have got very far. So why don't we just take it over and use it to achieve our own sorts of ends? So <clears throat> when we think about all that, I think that the, the moment that we're living through now seems uh, less strange than it might have looked, say, 10, 15 years ago. I want to come back to China, but in your analysis, as you look at this, uh, how much of this is a byproduct of a kind of mentality, uh, a result of the fact that the Republican and Democratic parties have over 30 years now essentially just been swapping their political bases? And Donald Trump becomes this at first uh, unlikely. Um, but then for you know reasons that I think became more concrete and obvious to some of us, he, 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 found, uh, he found a constituency and he found an audience and he gave voice to their feelings. But how much of this is kind of a, the people have chosen and I must go uh, with them for I am their leader? <laughs> well, that's a good, that's an interesting um, point because you can look at this in terms of people's attitudes towards trade, which have been tracked by organizations like Gallup for a long time now. So if you look, for example, at um, the most recent um, Gallup findings on people's attitudes towards trade vis-a-vis -vis their political position. So once upon a time, Republicans up until maybe five years ago said that they broadly favored free trade, Democrats were a little more skeptical, and so were independents. Now that has flipped. It's flipped so that a minority of republic, self-described Republicans say they favor free trade, which means that most of them say they're in favor of protectionism. A minority of independents say they favor free trade, meaning a majority of independents say they're in favor of protectionism. And a majority of Democrats say that they favor free trade. So I think there's there's a couple of things going on. One is what you just pointed to, this sort of swapping of political bases that's been going on for a while now. But also tells us uh, that the politics of opposition reigns supreme. So, I think for many Democrats, the uh, the idea is, if Trump or whoever is the, whoever is uh, in the place of Trump is for trade, I'm against it. If he's against trade, I'm for it. So I think that's what we're seeing in terms of these attitudes. And if you look at the the go back further into the the survey data, you see oscillating views on trade. A lot of it's reflected by things like recessions. So in times of recession, everyone starts to get more protectionist in the way that they think about the world. But broadly speaking, I think uh, China, I suspect, is one of the things that's given protectionism a new lease of life in the United States just when we thought 
we'd uh, nailed that particular vampire with a stake through its heart. But that that's clearly hasn't happened. I think this is a good chance to ask the question I wanted to on China, which is uh, you, you mentioned the arguments that were made for allowing China into the World Trade Organization. Uh, we, we highlight part of the story in our documentary, uh, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, where we wanted to highlight what happened in China over that period of time, which is something that is truly remarkable. Yes, you know, the political totalitarianism, uh, the lack of human freedom on those political dimensions, uh, that is still true of China. In fact, it's worse. Uh, it, and uh, yes, I, I think you're right about that. It, it is certainly, arguably, much worse now than it was 30 years ago. Uh, but millions of people have been pulled out of poverty by China embracing uh, a more market-based economy. And yeah, I mean, yes, there is that very Tom Friedman on the New York Times pages kind of analysis that looks at the history of China and after over decades killing millions and millions and millions of people trying to make communism work uh, or some form of, of you know, uh, top-down state-oriented economy work, finally reluctantly embraces market reforms and has this incredible growth in, uh, in, in wealth and GDP and pulling people out of poverty. Uh, and it really takes a special Tom Friedman-like voice to look at that and go, by God, it must be the totalitarianism that did it. <laughs> so was it a mistake to let China enter the World Trade Organization? Uh, because, well, I mean, for you could take this, I think, in many different ways, right? So like, we see the economic outcome part of it, but it has created a lot of the problems that you have just highlighted in your answers to the previous questions that I asked you. So looking back on it now, was it an error? Well, economically speaking, it certainly was not an error because it opened up for America lots of markets. It, with a market of 1.4 billion people, no one wants to ignore a market of that size. And you can be sure if we did, the Europeans wouldn't. So economically speaking, I think... It benefited Americans immensely by uh, much lower costs for all sorts of goods and services that um, they would have otherwise been paying a lot more for. It also exposed the American economy to competitive pressures, which I think is good. It's good for an economy to be exposed to competitive com um, competitive pressures. It also was, I think, uh, good insofar as many American businesses were able to set up shop in China, <clears throat> realized new economies of scale. And it also meant that uh, American workers who had been doing things in particular areas of the economy which were no longer competitive were moving to other parts of the economy which, in which they were generally paid better wages and also working less physically strenuous jobs as well. So <clears throat> there's a very good story to be told about the economic benefits flowing from China entering the WTO and America's trade relationship with China. It's a very good economic story, but the economic story is not the whole story. There's also a political story to this as well. And the political story is that uh, if you enter the World Trade Organization, you're expected to play by certain rules. And it's very clear, certainly, especially after 2000 and eight, and 2012, when Xi comes to power, 
that China, certainly the regime by that point, had made the decision that it was not going to play by the rules. And so, for example, we see Chinese nationals, Chinese businesses engaging in things like industrial espionage, intellectual property theft, etc. And they were getting away with it for a long period of time. There were very few prosecutions of Chinese nationals and businesses engaged in this type of activity up until uh, 2018 when that's when some prosecutions started in the United States of such people. It's also, I think, uh, fair to say that politically speaking, China hasn't abided by a lot of the promises that it made when it entered the WTO, things like getting rid of subsidies and things like that that they're supposed to do if you enter the WTO. They didn't do that either. Now, in some senses, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is, after all, a communist regime, and I think we're often inclined to think that that's not important. Well, it, it sort of is important because that is the ideology. And we should also remember that Xi, Xi is a true believer I mean, he is when he dresses up like Chairman Mao, he's not doing it for just cosmetic reasons. Um, it's not Chinese Halloween. No, not at all. Not at all. And it's, <clears throat> it's very clear that he wants to develop a very different economic model to that of the United States. He's really trying to build a particular version of state capitalism. Uh, now, but, but the WTO and China's enter, entry into the WTO has nothing to do with that. That's the thing, right? This is China's regime deciding it wants to go down a particular political path. And that's what they're doing. They're employing industrial policy on a massive scale. There's lots of subsidies going to different parts of the economy. They are re-centralizing the party's control of enterprises. Um, They're squishing out pockets of economic freedom where it existed. If you go into negotiations with a Chinese business, the most important person in the room is not the person you're negotiating with. It's whoever is the most senior Communist Party member. So <clears throat> the political side of all this is that China has moved, especially under Xi, in a very state-centric, top-down, authoritarian direction. Now, they're not getting rid of all the reforms. They're not stupid. They know some of these things work. But it's very clear that Xi does want a very different model to what we experience in the West. But again, I say that has nothing to do with China going into the WTO, that these are two separate things that I think we need to talk about when we're thinking about our relationship with China. Is it possible to have a trading relationship with China that avoids all the problems of the nature of the regime there? And that's what we're working our way through right now. There's something very interesting in what you just pointed out there that this is is the Chinese Communist Party that is in charge of the nation of China. Uh, as as I've been taking the Hong Konger around the country and, and uh, around the world and uh, some of the international screenings we've done too, uh, as part of my presentation when I get asked questions about China currently, part of my answer is to say that it's uh, – you know, we get this – connection that is made to the Cold War. And, you know, like all analogies, it's helpful helpful insofar as it goes, but like all analogies, it is imperfect because you're comparing two things that aren't the same. And one of the ways that it's not the same is not only did we not have any kind of a trading relationship with the Soviet Union, it really wasn't possible to have a trading relationship with the Soviet Union in the way that it has been possible to have one in China. The Soviet Union was committed 
to a economic philosophy that was to their detriment, as we you know, found out eventually in the collapse of the Soviet Union. China is not. Um, they have proved much more flexible on that question. So is it, is it fair to still consider them a communist regime when they are employing uh, so many uses of the marketplace in order to make themselves wealthier in a way that the Soviet Union did not do. And even other you know, former uh, communist Soviet satellite states um, or nations that embrace the same philosophy, take North Korea as another example, um, North Korea's commitment to, to, to Marxism is not clear anymore. It has essentially become a monarchy. Uh, a one family hereditary monarchy that is you know, state power and state control and that has an origin in a Marxist philosophy, but that isn't operating like the Soviet Union was. And in fact, they've expunged a whole lot of the Marxist communist language and replaced it with their own Juche philosophy. Um, is it fair to consider these, is it actually communist? Is China actually communist? Or is it, you know, as the marketing guy asked the question here, is this a branding exercise in some way? <laughs> you know, is it, it's still called the Chinese Communist Party, but it's a communist party that is embracing uh, a market economy in a way that would just be absolutely unrecognizable to somebody studying uh, the tenets of Marxism and communism in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Well, China and the Soviet Union are very, very different entities. And <clears throat> you're right in the sense that certainly from the late 1970s, they both countries took very different economic paths in terms of how they wanted to organize their economies. Now, in the case of China, um, <clears throat> I think there's a couple of good data points that we should, we should point to. Uh, first of all, uh, communists – and communist parties have long played the game of using economic freedom when they think it's in their immediate interests to do so. So in the immediate in the immediate aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917-1918 and the, then you had the Russian Civil War and then was what was called war communism. The disaster of that led to Lenin deciding that he was going to allow the kulaks to have a certain degree of property, a certain degree of um, income. They were able to go exchange in exchange, et cetera, et cetera. So you had a sort of a very primitive market economy allowed because the regime needed that for that particular period of time. And during the Cold War, if you looked at a lot of the uh, satellite states in the um, Eastern Bloc, you would see that they would play similar types of Game. So Yugoslavia had what was called market socialism, <laughs> which is a strange blend of uh, sort of a type of corporatism and sort of sort of market methods. And even in a country like Poland, the, the, the peasantry, because it was significantly large, were allowed to keep a certain degree of property for themselves. <clears throat> so uh, my point is just to simply say that communist parties, when it comes to these sorts of things, come up with all sorts of rationales to justify what would appear to be what you're pointing to, which is significant departures from 
what would be a sort of um, Marxist orthodoxy about these sorts of things in terms of having the state run the economy as part of the transition towards the this this communist world in which we'll all be free to hunt, shoot, and fish. I think Lenin said, uh, Marx said, as we wished. So, um, in the in, in the case of China, it's further complicated by the fact that it's a it's not a Western country. It's a very distinctly it has its own political culture. And <clears throat> for that reason, it seems to me that in some respects, what Marxism functions, is a, in, at least in the context of China, is a way of, of providing legitimacy for the regime. And I, we joked before about Xi dressing up like Mao, right? Well, it's, you can be cynical about that, but I, I think in his case, it's a way of signaling to audiences that you're not going to see him wearing a suit with a suit and tie as much as he used to. You're going to be seeing him dressed in this sort of Chairman Mao type outfit. So <clears throat> I think in the case of China, the, the issue of whether people actually believe in the ideology, well, that's that's hard to tell, especially in a culture where people are very good or are even trained in some respects not to let you know what you're thinking, what they're thinking. But I don't think there's much doubt that it functions as, a, as one of the tools of legitimation that the regime will use, regardless of whether it's adopting policies that would seem to contradict that ideology. Speaking of questions of commitment to an uh, ideology, let's come back to our friends on the new right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I asked you the question about you know, how much of this is uh, a, a vehicle you know, or is created by uh, the idea of, you know, the people have chosen, I must go with them for I am their leader. I can understand that kind of an explanation for, you know, the Marco Rubio example that you gave, right? Politicians are politicians, as, you know, to quote the great Milton Friedman, they're in a business, they're in a business of acquiring votes uh, and will do things uh, in the name of acquiring votes that may seem inconsistent to people like us who work in think tanks and study this stuff from, uh, from that perspective, but is entirely understandable in the political scene. Zoom out and look at the intellectual infrastructure of the political right, which took an embrace of a market economy for granted for a long period of time. Do you think that this academic intellectual infrastructure is responding as well to the political incentives in their left turn on economics? Or do you think that there's something else at play? Well, I, I think there is certainly that first element at work. So I have literally heard um, proponents of a conservative turn to the state on economic issues say to politicians, <clears throat> remember who your voters are. And that tells me that to a certain extent, some politicians are following what they believe to be the people's will, or at least an important part of the people and that particular constituency and what they want to see. So I think that's that's certainly part of it. Um, and I think that does explain the strange contortioning of a lot of politicians when it comes to some of these issues, how some pretty strong free traders have changed their position pretty radically in a very short period of time because they've sensed that at least upon some parts of the right, there is deep dissatisfaction with 
um, the case for markets. The, the, the Tucker Carlson of mm. a decade ago would not recognize the Tucker Carlson. In fact, would be inveighing against mm-hmm. the Tucker Carlson of today. I think that's right. So the Tucker Carlson of um, today was a sort of Cato uh, of yesterday was a sort of Cato guy. Yeah, he was a Cato fellow. Tell. Yeah, right, exactly. And now he's sort of more of an American moment person, as far as I can tell. Not that I watched that show, but um, but into the intellectuals thing was the other th- question that you asked about in this regard. So the case for protectionism, the case for a more interventionist role by the state has manifested itself on the right at different points of time. So let's remember that the Republican Party post-Civil War was the party of protection. It was the Democrats who were the free traders. Now, that had something to do with the particular types of industry that existed in the former Confederacy and which existed in um, the Union states, so to speak. Uh, But there were also people leading up to the Civil War. There was immense debates within American society about things like should we be adopting free trade or whether we should be adopting what was called the American system, which is Henry Clay and all those people who are arguing for what clearly represent um, a foreshadowing of the type of ideas that are being articulated today. So as much as I disagree with... um, the proponents of these ideas, there's no question that these ideas have a certain pedigree. It's not like they just jumped out of nowhere. And it's not a mistake, I think, that you find some of the magazines, for example, who are articulating some of these ideas, talking about things like a new American system, or even publishing lots of articles trying to explain to us that the American system somehow worked. It didn't. Let me just add that as a side. Yeah. But, that, but that's, that's the sort of thing that's going on. So there's definitely a fight here going on about American history and American economic history as well through the lens of these current discussions we're having right now. Yeah, that is, uh, that is interesting. The, I had interviewed Matt Continetti last year about his new book, uh, a relatively new book on the right where he looked at the political right in the United States over the course of 100 years, and he starts back in the 1920s. And reading that first chapter of his book was did, for me, a whole lot to explain what is going on right now because the parallels, the similarities between the both the Republican Party and the political right in the 1920s versus the 2020s, there are a lot of similarities there. So I, I, I agree with you that this stuff is um, – there is a pedigree of it on the political right, that we can, they can trace that origin back. The, the other part that I'm curious about is I, I read this morning, and I'll include it in the show notes, there was this, um, uh, this is a very online story, so I'll apologize to our listeners for that, but uh, there's a, a program called, a uh, morning program called Rising, uh, where uh, Bethany Mandel, uh, who's a commentator, was on um, that program and asked by uh Brianna Joy Gray, uh, if you know, to define wokeness, and she had a brain freeze moment. And I, you know, as somebody who generally talks for a living, and I'm We've sure all you have some of these, we have all had those moments where you're just your mind goes absolutely blank, even on a question you know the answer to. So the the kind of gotcha approach to uh, what happened with Bethany is 
I think just frustrating to me because we've all been there. Uh, but th- this guy who I'm not really familiar with, Freddie DeBoer, had a very interesting piece that he published, and and he's a left uh, center left guy. Um, saying like, you know, in a way, I wish woke politics would win over conservatism, but we can't have this like, you know, wokeism doesn't exist, right? You know, define it for me. It's like the, we, we can all acknowledge that something on the left is is different. And as I was reading this, I was thinking of the what has changed to me about the political right is an embrace of the idea of the American cultural civic and political project as now a zero-sum war, that it is no longer about the things that, uh, you know, that I have been educated to believe that they are about, which is how do you accommodate a nation like this with so many different people? Um, if, if you've been around this country, right, you, you can recognize just how different regions of this country are from other regions of this country. How do we all live together? Uh, and I've always thought that the political right had very good answers to those questions in, in federalism in particular. But it has seemed to change to me and transmute into this everything is a zero-sum war approach. That it is either going to be the left that is going to be victorious or it's the right that is going to be victorious. And anything that is done, any tool you need, weapon you need to pick up in order to win that zero-sum war is necessary to pick up. So you get uh, not just the reaction on the culture war side of things. I see the economic part of that kind of going along part and parcel, that if we need to drop and shed things that we were arguing for a long time because they're politically inconvenient and the only thing that's important is winning this zero-sum war for America, then we're going to do that. Well, there's certainly the case that much of the right has, a, has embraced the, the politics of Carl Schmitt, so Carl Schmitt is a German political philosopher of the 20th century uh, who, who, if you Google him, you'll find all sorts of very unpleasant things about him. Yeah, I was going to say, right. <laughs> German political philosopher of the 20th century. Right. Just just you know, think about that in your mind for five seconds and uh, yeah, so problematic The only thing I'll throw at is, is legal apologists for the Nazi regime. But moving on from that, he talked about politics in terms of friends and enemies that there are friends and there are enemies and the sooner you realize that, the better because then you can work out which who are your friends and who are your enemies and you can behave accordingly. And it seems to me that some sections of the right have effectively embraced that type of Manichaean argument that if you're not with me completely on 100% of things, you must, you're the enemy. Mm-hmm. You're part of the enemy. You're part of the problem. <clears throat> and of course, things like constitutionalism and limited government or saying that we're going to have a certain degree of pluralism within society, saying that we value liberty and that we're willing to accept up to a point that some people are going to use their freedom in ways that we don't like. Mm -hmm. All those things are anathema to the friend-enemy paradigm. It doesn't fit that type of paradigm. And so it seems to me that so much of the right, particularly the younger, on the younger side, have embraced this type of 
logic and are applying it to everything they see. So what this means is that if if good economics or the arguments about why, say, trade are is is much better to be free rather than burdened by tariffs. If that gets in the way of articulating a particular type of message to capture particular constituencies, then you ditch it. Uh, and also the other thing is that there's, there's also a means end thing going on here as well, whereby there are some people on the right who want to achieve certain social and cultural ends, many of which you and I might actually be actually in sympathetic towards. But to the extent that they believe a market economy gets in the way or doesn't deliver that in the ways that they want to see it delivered, they think that economic freedom has to be sort of put down the list of priorities. Yeah, this is uh, this is one of my concerns in this corrupt, what I see as this corruption of the right, uh, is when you start embracing the idea that the ends justify the means, you know, in, in practical experience, I often think it ends up cashing out as you lose what the ends are and the means become ends in themselves. Uh, so for this is one of the things that has frustrated me uh, in conversations with new righties about even the culture war element to all of this. Um, like I will stipulate to a lot of the diagnoses of problems uh, that they point to. But in the anything is justifiable to win this fight, um, well, you know, what are, what do you have at the end there? You know, what, say you win this war, um, and it, it, is, it, it is reminiscent to me also of this odd thing about our politics right now, our electoral politics, is everybody when they're out of power, kind of believes that they're never going to be in power again. And everybody who has power believes they're never going to be out of power again. And they act as such, despite the fact that they should know darn well the likelihood of you know people just generally getting tired of the regime in power are going to flip it at some point in time. But you know the, the clearest example of this that we've had in the last you know, decade or so was Harry Reid blowing up the judicial filibuster um, and then that ending up being the path through which uh, Mitch McConnell drives a whole bunch of new Supreme Court nominees. Nobody operates as if they will ever be out of power again and should want to protect some of those protections of the minority because you're going to be in the minority at some point in time. It is just it. so much of it, again, to me, is not about the project of what I think our civic and political efforts are about, which is how does such a diverse nation like this coexist together? It becomes this Schmidian war of these are my friends and these are my enemies and, you know, they, they must be vanquished and driven before me and I hear the lamentations of their women to uh, quote Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> I mean, it's also the other part, part of this problem is that some conservatives by going down this path are effectively adopting not just Schmittian uh, logic, they're also adopting the, the logic of the left, the logic of progressives. And the left certainly has a sort of friends and enemy view of the world, I would argue. Not all, but for the, there's a fair chunk of them that do, the more radical ones especially. 
but also they're more than willing to use the state in and in, in ways that are, let's put it this way, constitutionally suspect to try and get their way. So to my mind, when conservatives start adopting that type of progressive logic, which implies, of course, a sort of contempt for the constitution, it's just a tool for us to get our way, when they start looking at things like the Commerce Clause and saying, now, how can we use that to achieve this end rather than, well, we know what the end of this thing is. This is why we need to protect it, right? You can see that they're moving away from some of the most basic principles of America's constitutional structure. And you would think that if American conservatives were in the business of conserving anything, it would be the American part of that, right? The American founding. But we have some people on the right now, um, uh, we, we often call them integralists, who have a very instrumental view of the American constitution, who believe that the American founding is flawed at its root. And they are very clear that they want to create something completely different. That, at least to my mind, the only precedence for that type of um, regime in America exists on the left. How do you respond to the argument from some of those on the new right that these are the new rules, right? So in, in order to have that kind of constitutional American society that embraces concepts like you know, federalism, uh, you know, pluralism, secularism, and, and the proper understanding of secularism, I just did a whole interview with uh, Michael Byrd about his book on, on that, which you know, I thought he had very good insights, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, but the argument that you get back is that the left is not committed to that project. And all that we on the right would be doing by remaining committed to that project and the rules that are dictated to you and how you operate in a political and intellectual space uh, by a commitment to that project, if the other side is going to break all the rules in order to win, all we're doing is tying at least one hand behind our back by saying we're going to remain committed to these rules of engagement when the other side is not doing it. How do you respond to that? Well, the first thing I'd say is that these are not just rules of engagements. They're rules that reflect requirements of justice or things that are good and right. And I think that <clears throat> when conservatives get in the business of saying, well, those things aren't so important as long as we win, then you fall into this problem of means and ends. And very soon you start forgetting about the ends and you become uh, obsessed with uh, using whatever means you want to achieve particular goals. And you, I think you start to lose sight of what the entire project is about in the first place. The second thing is, is that the rules actually turn out in many, many cases to be very good for conservatives insofar as they provide lots of good protections for conservatives in times when they're not necessarily in the majority or they're not controlling um, any branches of government or whatever it happens to be. There are reasons why, for example, back in the in the 1930s, why Franklin Roosevelt wasn't entirely able to get completely his way because there were rules in place that prevented him from doing so. It's the same as the way that things like the First Amendment function in the United States today. 
First Amendment cases and judicial cases have provided lots of good protections for Americans, uh, particularly religious Americans, who believe that their legitimate religious liberties have been infringed upon by the government. So for conservatives then to sort of look at these and just say, well, these are just tools, they're not that important in themselves, is to basically give up on all these things that are very protective of certain goods that Americans think are important. The last thing I'll say is that I do think that these these rules, as they call them, these rules of engagement, they do reflect, they are reflective of a deeper commitment to human liberty. They're also a commitment to uh, that type of freedom, let's call it ordered liberty, whereby people are free to pursue virtue, the good, etc., even in the context of a pluralistic society. Because that, I think, is really the alternative that we're trying to present to the left. Because if and, and if what we're trying to do is present our own sort of left-wing alternative to the left's vision, then it seems to me then that we have effectively been assimilated to the way that they think about the world. It's right-wing progressivism. Yeah. yeah. Final question for you, Sam. Um, what advice would you have for free marketers, you know, th- th- these people who have – uh, you know, for a good portion of time and from an economic perspective, been the dominant voice on the political right who are now facing these challenges, which, again, as, as you've, you've pointed out accurately, are not brand new. They did not – they're not sui generis. They did not come out of nowhere. Uh, they, there have always been these currents on the American political right. But for people who believe, rightly I think, that um, an embrace of market a market economy – is is right uh, facing this new opposition? What advice do you have for them to really get back into the game and to not do it in the way that, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from a friend of mine, uh, just comes across as bad Reagan karaoke, where people <laughs> just get up and repeat the same things that Ronald Reagan said in the night, late 1970s and the 1980s uh, without recognizing what I think Reagan was doing, which is taking a timeless set of principles and applying them to the problems of the time. Uh, but for so many years following that, people just repeated the same things that Ronald Reagan said for you know reasons that are both uh, understandable and, and problematic. Uh, what advice would you have have for advocates for free markets uh, to exist and to fight the good fight in this current environment? Well, that's a good question on which to finish because it's a question that has preoccupied a lot of us for a long time. And I think the first thing to keep in mind is that we need to recognize, and this comes from your point, it's not the 1980s anymore. We're living in the 2020s. The world has changed enormously since then. Uh, there are until recently, for example, we didn't have um, we had we had entire generations of Americans who had no knowledge or experience of what inflation was like, right? So we're living now in America where the demographic base has shifted in many different ways, religiously, ethnically, uh, etc. And we need to be attentive to that. A second thing I think we need to do is be very aware that if if the case for markets is limited purely to the economic realm, then I think we will lose. We will lose. And that's a mistake I think a lot of free marketers 
uh, made, with some notable exceptions, like the Acton Institute, for example. Uh, but I think that was a mistake that a lot of free marketers made for a long period of time, that if, if you just get the economic arguments right, everything else will follow, and everything else is sort of a distraction. And I'd, I'd add, too, a, a very consequentialist approach to right. the argument for markets that, you know, they, they produce better outcomes and that in itself is self-justifying. Right. And, you know, markets do produce good, better economic outcomes, but... Um, the problem with uh, the problem with consequentialism is that it justifies any means possible to get to whatever mean whatever end you want, right? So, <clears throat> so what that indicates to me is that free marketers have to take their arguments onto the terrain of philosophy, ethics, and maybe above all, in some respects, um, history, because this is where a lot of people on the new right and certainly people on the left are coming from. We can argue until we're blue in the face and we need to argue these things that markets work, socialism doesn't, social democracy doesn't, welfare state has all sorts of negative economic in, impacts, et cetera, et cetera. We need to do all that. But we need to come up with much stronger normative clothing for those arguments and much stronger normative foundations for those things. The person that I think of who did a very good job of this, uh, certainly in the 1980s, was Michael Novak, his book, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. Now, some of that book is still, it, it is a little dated now because the numbers have changed. It was written in the early 1980s, etc. But the, the core arguments in which he makes uh, very clear connections between the economic arguments for markets and limited government and the ethical, the normative, and the historical arguments for these things. One of the reasons that book got so much attention was because very few people argued that. So if you talk to Milton Friedman about these questions, you get a sort of blank stare, I think. There's a story um, which, which I'll finish with that in um, 19, I think it was 1972 or 1973, Milton Friedman invited Irving Kristol to come and speak at a Montpelerin Society meeting. And Crystal at this point, Irving Crystal, was had become a convert to markets. He was a member on the left as a young man and then had, as he said, grown up. And but notably so, as I and I have this book, um, a two cheers for capitalism right, guy. Yeah. Right, right, right. And he got up in front of he 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 I've heard the story that um, when he was invited to speak to the Montpelerin Society, he thought of getting up and basically saying, um, Man does not live by bread alone. Thank you very much. And just walking off the stage. Now, he didn't do that, but his point was, yes, the economic arguments are very important. Yes, we must win the economic arguments. We must do the battle with the Keynesians, with the socialists, with the social democrats, but also with, with the corporatists and now the, pro, pro, the, the conservative pro-government people, right? We've got to do the battle on the economic side of things. But if you think that that's enough in terms of persuading people to the case for markets and limited government and strong civil societies, if you think that's enough, you're making a very serious mistake. And that is where I think free marketers have to lift our game. We need to keep the economics, absolutely. But if we don't supplement that and buttress it with these other arguments, we lose. Dr. Samuel Gregg is Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy and Senior Research Faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and an Affiliate Scholar at the Acton Institute. 
His latest book is The Next American Economy, Nation, State, and Markets in an Uncertain World, which is available now. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today on Act Line. Eric, good to be with you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.